inactive people are up to 50% higher risk. Exercise is woefully underestimated by the medical community and by patients at large. And we've got to do a better job explaining what the benefits are. CPR. It's what happens after someone dies as a last-ditch, high-intensity effort. Unlike the movies, it usually fails. What if we used that drive, while we're still alive, to heal ourselves? Welcome to CPR for Life, where we help you understand how to reclaim your health by changing your everyday life. I'm Dr. Sagar Doshi, board certified in both lifestyle and emergency medicine, and certified health coach. Our health is like a vehicle. I've seen too many people, including my own family, crash their health because they don't realize they are the ones driving. This podcast aims to help each of us take the wheel and learn where to go. But even though these conversations are evidence-based, they are just for your education. So please talk with your physician before making changes. Welcome to CPR for Life, Dr. Franklin. Today, I have the privilege, everyone, of speaking with one of the top experts in the world on the planet on exercise, particularly in how it relates to the heart. Dr. Barry Franklin, PhD, is the Director of Preventative Cardiology and Cardiac Rehab at Beaumont Health in Michigan. He's a professor at both Wayne State School of Medicine and the William Beaumont School of Medicine. He's been a president of both the American Association of Cardiovascular and Pulmonary Rehab and the American College of Sports Medicine. He's a fellow of the American Heart Association, and he's also an editor for multiple journals, including the American Journal of Cardiology and the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine. He's also written numerous articles and books, the most recent of which is called GPS for Success, which we will talk about later. And I could go on and on listing accolades, but instead, let's just get to the good stuff and start discovering what Dr. Franklin can reveal to us about the human body and the heart. Great. Pleasure to be with you today. Well, thank you for being here. For people unfamiliar with your work and what exactly you do, because it's not the standard cardiologist sort of deal, just tell us what it is you do and how you affect patients. Sure. I serve as the Director of Preventive Cardiology and Cardiac Rehabilitation at William Beaumont Hospital, Royal Oak, Michigan. I'm involved in working with people who've had heart attacks, bypass surgery, angioplasty, valvular surgery. I direct an entire program and I work with people who work with patients who have these cardiac conditions. I'm also very, very fortunate that I direct the Cardiovascular Performance Clinic. We can talk about it later on. I also teach fellows, residents, medical students. I'm involved in research for ever since I've been here, over 700 publications, 27 books. I teach in the medical school as professor, and I volunteer for a lot of organizations like the American Heart Association, AACPPR, ACSM. I'm currently on the board of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, the only PhD among 20 uh, cardiologists, so to speak. So it's been very rewarding, and that's basically what I do for a living. I also see every new patient coming into the cardiac rehab program where I review their risk factor profile, their met capacity strategies to facilitate cardiovascular risk reduction. So we're involved in all those things. That. That is amazing. And so as far as the patients with the acute heart disease, the active heart disease, it sounds like 
It's really more of the, all right, now you've had this problem. Let's get you healthy again using movement. And you're exactly right. We now recognize that lifestyle medicine, as we talked about earlier, uh, and pharmacotherapies, there's some very good pharmacotherapies, aspirin, statins, beta blockers, ACE inhibitors, those provide independent and additive benefits. So when somebody says to me, I don't want bypass surgery again, what do I need to do? I say, you need to be aggressive with your lifestyle, take the right medications over time, know your risk factors. And if you can do that, you've got a good chance of avoiding bypass surgery or multiple angioplasties in the future. Nice. We'll get into those details, but this is not the common aspect of cardiology. When I talk to patients who have gone to the hospital, gone out of the hospital, they may have never seen somebody like you and they may not because it's underutilized. So how did you find yourself doing this clinical work? Well, I, I have to share with you, I, even in high, in high school, I was a gymnast. In high school, in college, I was always interested in physical activity and fitness. I went to Kent State University undergraduate school, then decided to go on for a master's degree at the University of Michigan and a PhD at Penn State University. At Kent State, I became fascinated with exercise science, exercise physiology. They did a treadmill test on me, put a mask and a breathing and they measured my VO2 max, the maximum amount of oxygen you can take in and utilize. And I learned that that's a very, very strong clinical prognostic indicator. Then I went on, ultimately, my first job was at Miller Fillmore Hospital, Buffalo, New York. And then I went on to work at Case Western Reserve University with a world-renowned cardiologist, the late Dr. Herman Hillerstein, world-renowned. And then I went to Sinai Hospital, Detroit for five years. In the last 37 years, I've been at William Beaumont, Royal Oak, Michigan, one of the top 20 cardiology programs in the country. Oh. What was it about exercise physiology that fascinated you so much? And, and then how did you connect that to hearts and helping yeah, people? I think there were, there were two, two tests that I underwent as an athlete that were fascinating. The treadmill test with oxygen consumption to measure what's called aerobic capacity so I could compare myself with other athletes and, and so on and so forth. And then I also became very interested in metabolism, body composition. They had an underwater tank, so they dunked me underwater and, and they'd measure my body density and we could come up with body fat calculations. So those were early studies that really were, I found very provocative and decided, wow, I, I need more education. So I went on for a master's at Michigan and then a PhD at Penn State. And ever since I left Penn State in 76, I've been working with cardiologists and have loved it. That's fantastic. So it sounds like you're the right person to ask this general question, which is, in your perspective, what is health? It's an excellent question. It's a question I'm oftentimes asked. I, I guess I would simply say it's the absence of chronic diseases, which account for 75% of all the health care expenditures in the United States. So diabetes hypertension, coronary artery disease. So if we can prevent those diseases from happening to a large extent, it's lifestyle change. Those go a long way. You say, Barry, give me the definition of what you're looking for. It's really physical, psychological, mental well-being or the optimal functioning of body systems, whether we're looking at the kidney, GFR or whatever. And oftentimes a blood chemistry, blood biochemistry profile can be very indicative of how well body systems are working. Okay. Well, speaking of getting those body systems into optimal capacity, we often 
talk about exercise, hear about exercise, but what, what is exercise? I consider exercise really a subcategory of being physically active, but it's more structured. And the goals are generally to maintain or increase cardiorespiratory fitness. That's our ability to take in and utilize oxygen, to decrease the incidence of chronic disease, to improve physical performance, and ultimately health outcomes. So exercise or structured exercise has been shown unequivocally to have those favorable outcomes on the patients we serve. Yeah. Somebody once told me, I once had a patient tell me, that he went to cardiac rehab after having a heart attack. And the people there told him that he could out-exercise his heart disease if he would just exercise at least several hours per day. So is that true? And what really can exercise do after the diagnosis of coronary artery disease or even a heart attack? How much benefit is there? Yeah, well, we can, we can talk more about this later in the conversation. But I think for the most part, I wouldn't say you could out-exercise your heart, but I would say that exercise-based cardiac rehab confers about a 30% reduction in cardiovascular mortality. So that's pretty darn significant. If you say, what are the mechanisms? I'd say they're anti-atherosclerotic, anti-arrhythmic, anti-ischemic, anti-thrombotic, and psychologic benefits. Quick definitions. Anti-atherosclerotic means against the plaque buildup in the blood vessels. Antiarrhythmic means against bad heart rhythms. Anti-ischemic means against a lack of oxygen into the tissues. And anti-thrombotic means against blood clots being formed. And we can talk specifically for your listeners and viewers what those really mean. Thirdly, I'd say that each one met increase in exercise capacity confers about a 15 to 20 percent reduction in cardiovascular mortality. That's big news. That's important stuff. When you prescribe an aspirin, statin, beta blocker, you typically get about a 23% reduction. So you can get almost the same reduction by getting people more physically active. I'm not saying throw out the aspirin, the statins, and the beta blockers. I'm saying complement them by encouraging your patients to be more physically active and to improve their cardiorespiratory fitness. The topic number four, it favorably modifies many risk factors for cardiovascular, diabetes, hypertension. Physical activity, fitness, markedly reduce the risk of heart failure in middle age and older age. They reduce the risk of atrial fibrillation, heart rhythm regularity associated with stroke, and they finally reduce the risk of chronic kidney disease. The last point I'd make, and I think you'll find this as a primary care internal medicine, emergency medicine doc, fascinating. And most people don't know this. Exercise preconditioning actually offers a cardioprotective phenotype. I'll explain that in lay language. It basically means your patient who goes out and starts an exercise program, one or two sessions that week, is protected against an acute MI. Quick definitions. Acute MI means sudden heart attack. Ventricular tachycardia is a kind of deadly heart rhythm. Phenotype means the observable characteristics that result from nature and nurture meeting and interacting. That's not to say that they can't have an acute MI. Basically, over the next week or 10 days, if they've exercised previously in the, in the five, 10 days previous to that, if they have a heart attack, it's been shown to be less severe less heart damage, 
fewer heart rhythm irregularities. If you don't believe it, go to our paper in the American Journal of Cardiology about two years ago, and it says exercise preconditioning as a cardioprotective phenotype. This started with animal studies in which investigators locked off a coronary artery and then ran animals on a treadmill were able to induce ventricular tachycardia. Half the animals, they had exercise. The other half had cage rest. They replicated the study. They blocked off a coronary artery to induce ischemia. The exercise group, they were unable to induce ventricular tachycardia. The sedentary group, they were able to induce ventricular So it says that exercise, even one or two remedial bouts, if you have a heart attack in the ensuing week or so, the heart attack is going to be less severe, cause less life-threatening damage, and it's not known by many, many clinicians. It's that an added fantastic. benefit of exercise. Yeah, and it's, it's quick. That's just yes. in the week prior. Yes, correct. And so you mentioned earlier one MET increase, but I would say most people listening don't know what that means. Okay. So what is sitting, a MET? Yeah, sitting here, it, it METs are units of energy expenditure that we use in clinical cardiology. And for example, sitting here, as we're talking, both of us are at one MET. Everybody at rest is at one MET. If you go out and walk at two miles an hour, you're a little over two METs. If you walk a little over three miles an hour, you're a little over three METs. You play singles tennis, you're in the six to seven MET range. If you jog at six miles an hour, you're in the 10 MET range. So we can quantify now energy expenditure, and that helps us in terms of prescribing exercise. And number two, determining what your level of cardiorespiratory fitness is in METs. If it's below five METs, maximum capacity, generally, those are people who have a poor prognosis. Okay. And so... By those numbers, unless we're talking relative, if those numbers, if we get above a certain number of METs, then is it at some point impossible for us to get a heart attack? No, I, w I wouldn't say it's impossible because I've seen, I've been around for many, many years, but I'd say the likelihood diminishes greatly. And what most people don't realize, most physicians don't realize, is the initial goal. If you said to me, Barry, what's, what's the initial goal that I should recommend? You want to have above a five met capacity, which means you can increase your energy expenditure five times or greater above rest. How do you achieve that? You don't have to exercise routinely at five mets, but you have to exercise above three mets. Then if you say to me, okay, what does that transform to in terms of treadmill workloads? Three miles an hour. If you could do three miles an hour, you're working at 3.3, 3.4 mets. I know if I do a stress test on you, you're going to beat five METs if you're regularly exercising three METs or above. For the older patient who says to me, Doc, I can't walk at three miles an hour. It's too damn fast. My answer is you walk at two miles an hour and gradually increase the grade three and a half percent. Two miles an hour, three and a half percent. Then you're working about 3.4 METs. It conveys a very significant survival advantage, just having a five met capacity or greater. Okay. And so how does this kind of capacity kind of compare? You mentioned it a little bit to other modalities for helping people who have heart disease, like stress reduction or medications, nutrition. I think I'd, I'd reemphasize the fact that each one met increase in fitness confers about a 15 to 20% reduction in mortality. 
you as a physician, if you say, I want you taking aspirin or statins or beta blockers, each one of those on average, and I've been studying this for 50 years, each one of those on average reduces the risk by about 23%. So what I'm saying is, if you really want to markedly reduce your risk, take the prescribed medications, especially in secondary prevention, aspirin, statins, beta blockers, start walking, get above a five med capacity, and those are big, those will have big impact in terms of reducing morbidity and mortality. Once again, exercise provides independent and additive benefits. So don't stop taking your aspirin, statins, beta blockers, but start walking if you want even more protection. So if you do all these things, you can have real confidence that even though, all right, even though I had a heart attack, if I'm doing all these things, I'm markedly dropping my chances of something bad happen. I don't have to live in a state of anxiety of having another one around the corner. I'd, I'd agree with that completely. And if you continue your exercise two or three times a week, that exercise cardioprotective benefit will be there. So should you have a heart attack, it'll probably be less severe and you're more likely to walk out of the hospital after that heart attack than pass away in the hospital at the time. Yes. Okay. Now, there are people that we hear about, different populations, blue zones even, that are have great health and they don't do any quote-unquote exercise. So how much does the activity outside of exercise matter? And is that ever enough? Yeah, you're exactly right. The people in blue zones are physically active. They're not necessarily walking on a treadmill or cycle ergometer or whatever, but that physical activity is extremely important. To your point, it doesn't have to be formal exercise. It can be simply increased physical activity, ideally above three METs, which means you've got above a five MET capacity, which means there's a tremendous survival advantage. Years ago, we said you got to do minimum 10-minute bouts of exercise. In fact, I was on that paper that said that. We were wrong. Newer studies using accelerometry and other ways of measuring physical activity have shown that small amounts of physical activity throughout the day can confer very significant health benefits. How small? And how big are the benefits? A classic study showed if you're sedentary for an hour and you get up mm -hmm. and move for two minutes of that hour, there's a very significant survival advantage. Wow. Two minutes in the hour. So instead of sending that email to the colleague down the hall, get up and walk down the hall and chat with them and you can get your two minutes of exercise in. So two minutes per hour can confer significant survival benefit. When you say significant, do you have a percentage? In, in, or... in, the, neighbor, in the neighborhood of 10 to 15 uh, oh. percent. So, so to me, that, that, that's very significant. I guess yeah. the point I would make too is that uh, exercise, like I do a lot of writing. I write a paragraph here, a paragraph there, and pretty soon after six months, eight months, I got a book. Exercise can be accumulated. I used to tell people you need 30, 60 minutes all at one time. I was wrong. There's lots of new studies that suggest every minute counts. So two minutes here, five minutes here, and so on and so forth. So I tell my patients, you don't have to put the dollar bill in the piggy bank all at one time. You can put four quarters in there or for my heart failure patients, 10 dimes or even 20 nickels, three, four, five, all this stuff adds up throughout the day. So people say, I don't have time. You got two minutes here, three minutes here, six minutes here. All that stuff adds up. That's a fantastic analogy. Yeah. yeah. That really makes sense. So you mentioned the sedentary 
behavior being really dangerous. How is it that just not moving puts us at risk? Number one, not moving or moving very, very little, that sedentary living results in people being unfit and inactive, which is a risk factor in and of itself. Those people also tend to put on body weight and fat stores. Inactive people also have poor glucose metabolism. They don't handle sugar well. Sugar accumulates in their blood vessels. They have higher levels of resting heart rate and resting blood pressure. So all those things, the, our hypo, what I call hypokinetic lifestyle, lead to the development of cardiovascular disease. And if you say, Barry, do you have any specific examples of studies that showed that? Yes. Think about this. There was a classic study, 1950s, double-decker buses in England. There were basically two types of workers for those double-decker buses. Those who drove the bus and those who walked up and down the aisles collecting tickets. Those who drove the bus sitting all day had twice the incidence of cardiac events than the active conductors walking up and down. Same thing with mail sorters. There's two kinds of people in the post. Those who basically move here and those who put a backpack on and, and deliver from one house to the next. Comparison of postal workers revealed unequivocally those who walked around had about half the incidence of cardiovascular events as those who sat and sorted mail all day. So those are two classic studies that show that physically inactive people are up to 50% higher risk for acute coronary events. Exercise is woefully underestimated by the medical community and by patients at large. And we've got to do a better job explaining what the benefits are. Absolutely. And even what activity is, because I have a feeling if you ask the, uh, the bus worker or the postal worker, hey, how much do you exercise a day? They say, I don't have time to exercise. I haven't exercised anything. And as I showed you, you got 16, 17 waking hours a day. You take two minutes an hour, you can get a very significant 10, 15% reduction in mortality. So how is it that exercise is doing this? What is it doing inside of our bodies? You listed some several things, yeah. um, but what is, if you were to put it into lay terms, what's it actually doing? Well, number one, it raises the heart rate. Number two, it raises the blood pressure. Number three, it raises or increases metabolism or oxygen intake. It heightens the delivery of oxygenated blood to tissues. Very, very important. It stimulates the development of oxidative enzymes or as well as what's called mitochondria. For your, for your listeners, mitochondria are little cells within cells that produce ATP, that produce energy. So you want lots of mitochondria in those cells. It increases the blood supply, oxygen, nutrients to the cells. And also, and many people don't knew, know this, it prevents cellular senescence. So if you say to me, Barry, what, what, what are you talking about? It, it helps cells live longer, more productive. There are protective coatings on the sides of the cells called telomeres. Those Telomeres in people who are physically active are much longer, protect the cell, than the short telomeres, people who are inactive, who get cellular senescence. So all those things. Lastly, once again, anti-atherosclerotic, anti-ischemic, anti-arrhythmic, anti-thrombotic, and psychologic benefits. So that's basically what exercise does. Yeah, so it doesn't let the cells 
get damaged by a lack of oxygen, doesn't let them go into bad rhythms as much, doesn't let them pump up or clot. And apparently it's helpful for our mindsets from what you just said. Yeah. The tel longer telomeres, we believe, prevent cellular senescence and, and have anti-aging effects. We also know for, yeah, we also know, for example, that as you age, your fitness decreases about 1% per year. That's the bad news. The good news is if you get involved in an exercise program, you'll typically improve your aerobic fitness by 20%. So you're getting a 20-year rejuvenation. Right? I can take a 60-year-old and make them what they were at 40, or an 80-year-old make them what they were at 60, just with an aerobic exercise training program. That's powerful. When you mentioned that 1% drop, is that just a function of our body's aging or is that a function of our body's aging because we don't do anything? It's I think it's largely a function of aging and disuse or inactivity, but there are also some real factors. As you get older, your maximal heart rate goes down. As a, re as a result of your maximal heart rate goes down, your maximal cardiac output, a key determinant of the aerobic capacity, also goes down. So those are some things you can't control. That's going to happen no matter what. Yes. Okay. Now, once we get started, we often hear the two phrases right next to each other of, you need to exercise. It does all this amazing stuff that we just went over. But also ask your doctor first, because it might kill you. <laughs> so what is, when is exercise dangerous? Excellent question. This is a topic I've been interested in for 30, 40 years. Exercise is a double-edged sword. It protects against, but in some people, it can actually trigger, without question, acute coronary events. So if you say to me, Barry, who's the person at greater risk, the greatest risk? It's the habitually sedentary person, the inactive person with known or hidden occult coronary artery disease who goes out once a year or once a decade and does high-intensity, vigorous, like shoveling their driveway or playing racquetball mm. with their son-in-law. They used to be a good racquetball player 40 years ago, and they're going to go out with their son-in-law and play racquetball that day. So that unaccustomed, high-intensity exercise is typically what results in sudden cardiac death. The really sedentary person who goes out and does vigorous, high-intensity exercise the relative risk of a cardiac event can increase more than a hundredfold. More Whoa. Than, more than a hundredfold. On the other hand, for the person who's vigorous four or five days a week, when they go out and do vigorous exercise, their relative risk of a cardiac event increases twofold. Well, then you say to me, Barry, why will, it's still then dangerous. Yes, but the remaining 23 hours when they're not exercising, they're at 50% lower risk of an acute coronary event. So the benefits outweigh the risks. But while you're exercising, the risk does go up. It goes up most specifically for people who are inactive, who go out once a year or once a decade, not for the guy who's out running three, four days a week. His relative risk goes up double from rest. On the other hand, over the remaining 23 hours, of the, he's at half the, the risk of a cardiac event as his sedentary counterpart. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes sense. If you go from zero to 60 and you've never gone above 30, there's going to be, there's going to be more trouble. You're not going yeah. to know what you're doing. It, it's like it, what, when I used to do treadmill tests, do I, do I, who do I worry about? I don't worry about the guy who says I'm jogging 20 miles a week. Those are not the guys 
who have a heart attack on the, on the treadmill. It's the obese guy who's completely sedentary. And here, I'm going to take him up to a heart rate of 180 or 190. That's the guy who's more likely to develop ischemia, malignant heart rhythm regularities called arrhythmias. It's and is that just a function of, oh my gosh, they're doing so much activity, their heart's demanding so much more oxygen, and there's just not a capacity to deliver that oxygen? Yeah, I would agree with that. Whereas the, the habitually active guy is used to the raise in metabolism, the increases in heart rate, the increases in blood pressure, and it's not such a shock to the system. So his body has learned how to compensate and adjust, yeah. and the other guy not. This, this explains why in the winter... I will find in the emergency department, people being called out, ambulances going out, patient dead on arrival, found in the driveway with the snowball. You're, patient you're, dead you're, on arrival, found in the driveway exactly with the right. When people say to me, Barry, what are the two most dangerous events? I, I echo exactly what you said. In fact, we've published several papers, including one in JAMA, on the hazards of snow removal. And we, oh, wow. did, we did some studies here at Beaumont, the early 1990s. We took 10 healthy guys under the age of 35 because they wouldn't let us use 70 and 80 year olds like I wanted to use. And, and we did maximal treadmill tests on those guys. And then the next day, same time of day, we had them go out, shovel heavy, wet snow in the parking lot of Beaumont. What we found was astounding. We found that the heart rates and blood pressures during shoveling heavy, wet snow were equal to or greater than maximal treadmill testing. For those same guys Literally. and the energy expenditure during treadmill testing was 10 mets versus five mets. So what I'm saying is the, the, the stress is dangerously camouflaged with snow shoveling because the cardiac demands are equal to or greater than maximal treadmill testing, but the energy expenditure is half of maximal exercise testing. So those are the reasons why we have, you're exactly right, many heart attacks every year. In fact, after three major snowfalls here in the Detroit area, we identified about 30-some people who died suddenly from, from snow removal. And by the way, four were using an electric snow thrower. So the electric snow thrower reduces the risk, but it's, it's still for some people with severe heart disease. I mean, that heart rate, our study showed electric snow thrower 120 heart rate, shoveling 170, 175. But for some people, even that 120 can evoke plaque rupture, serious heart rhythm regularities. Fascinating. Wow. Having all that blood flowing so quickly, it's just loosening some stuff and yeah, causing yeah. it. It's plaque rupture arrhythmias. You've made me feel both better about me doing it as a form of exercise and much more worried about my neighbors. And you wonder you looking around and yeah. say, hey, can, I'll, I'll get that for you. <laughs> you just you sit down for a minute. So, in the role of acute disease, let's say, all right, I have a patient that come, comes into the emergency department. Yeah, they've, they're having a heart attack. Either it's straight up occlusive, they're rushing off to the cath lab to get it opened up, or they have some time and they'll, that'll happen the next day or so. What is the role of exercise in that person? As we said, the classic study appeared in the American Journal of Cardiology, American College of Cardiology Journal. It was done in Greece. And they showed that people who were hospitalized for coronary syndrome, either angina or heart attacks, if they were physically active in the days or weeks prior to their hospitalization, they were 50% more likely to not die in the hospital from that acute coronary event. That's astounding. That talks that's about the ACS, that's exercise preconditioning. And then 
in terms of chronic stable disease. So I'd say it's valuable in both, both acute and chronic setting. The adaptations include lower heart rate, lower blood pressure, better glucose metabolism, less likelihood of blood clotting, less likelihood of fatal arrhythmias, better risk factor modification. So all those factors are beneficial from a chronic standpoint. When is it too early to start? Can I, I assume I can't get my patient who's having the heart attack out of bed and start doing push-ups. So at what point can they start doing brisk walking, push-ups, whatever it is? Yeah, you know, we, we noted in the hospital after, after a heart attack, if we can get them, you, you, as you well know, sitting up on day one or day two after the heart attack or maybe standing, just ambulatory types of activities, those people tend to do far better than people who lay flat, who develop blood clots, pneumonia, and so on and so forth over an extended period of time. It was a classic study in healthy individuals, 1960s, took healthy guys, subjected them to two weeks of bed rest, two weeks of bed rest. Their aerobic capacity decreased by about 30%. What does that mean? It means bed rest is a time machine. In other words, you have somebody rest for two weeks, they age the equivalent of almost 30 years. We mentioned 1% per right. year. You, if you go and lie in bed for the next two weeks, you're going to decrease your aerobic capacity 25, 30%. That's the equivalent to what you're going to feel like 30 years from now. So we know that prolonged bed rest has very, very deleterious effects. I guess the point I'm making is anytime is the appropriate time to start an exercise. It's never too late. I would also highlight for you a, a recent, a couple of years ago, study in, in circulation, the AHA flagship journal showed that if you look at the most active cohorts in the U.S. population between the age of 45 and 50, if those, are, those most active cohorts are compared with the least active cohorts, those most active cohorts can expect seven to eight year gains in life expectancy, seven to eight year gains. So walking, slow jogging, hill, graded hill walking on a treadmill, all those things convey very, very significant benefits. And I assume it's not just seven or eight years of misery, but it, active, healthy years. Yeah. It, it, as you're alluding to, we're talking about the, what's called compression of morbidity hypothesis. So they do very well until the very end where they may have bad health for weeks or for a month or two, as opposed to several years. Yes, you can compress that disability by being physically active, not smoking, and eating right. I've actually never heard of that hypothesis. Yeah. The compression of morbidity. So, compression of morbidity. In other words, if you stay active, you don't smoke, you eat healthy, you don't become obese. What happens is that when you die, oftentimes very ill health is in the last weeks or months, not years of life. So the quality of life is much better. Okay. And you also call it a hypothesis. Does that mean there's not much evidence for it or it's still? In my opinion, the, the, the evidence is pretty, pretty unequivocal. Okay. There's good evidence that if you take care of yourself, you can have better health until the very end, whether it's a week, two weeks, a month, as opposed to years vegetating in a chair, as we see, unfortunately, some people in assisted living homes and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's the way to do it. Okay, so if I'm going to get to that point, how much do I actually need to move? What is what is the bare minimum that I need to do and how often? Yeah. 
you know, the, the World Health Organization in 2000 came up with updated recommendations. They recommend 150 to 300 minutes of exercise, of moderate intensity exercise per week, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous exercise per week. The important point I would highlight to you is that the intensity and duration of exercise are inversely related. So if you walk really slowly, you got to walk a lot longer. If you are able to safely work up to jogging or running, you could do a small amount of exercise and get the same or greater benefits. Let me give you an example. Studies in, published in the journal Lancet looking at worldwide people physical activity. What they concluded is that a five-minute run per day is equivalent to a 15-minute walk per day, okay? So it each confers about a 10% reduction in mortality. Once again, five-minute run versus 15-minute walk. So you're talking about three to one, mm -hmm. pretty significant. Or they gave an example of a 25-minute run being equal to a 105-minute brisk walk. Either one confers about a 35% reduction in mortality. That's four to one. So, so wow. there's, no, there's no question that more vigorous exercise, do not start with running, or but if people can gradually work up mm -hmm. without any symptoms, with a reasonable perceived exertion, it makes great sense. We have studies now suggesting even short minutes, two, three minutes of exercise repeated throughout the day can confer very significant benefits. As I said, the piggy bank analogy, it all adds up. Right. That's fantastic. So how do I even know if I am active enough? Let's say I don't have any heart rate monitors or chest straps or treadmills testing. How do I know if I'm doing enough? How can I tell that I am doing moderate or vigorous? Obviously, I have a watch so I can tell how long I'm doing things. If I had to give one tip, that, that tip would be to calculate, and this is not that difficult, the met minutes of exercise per week, your met minutes per week. And good research suggests to address your question, it should be 500 to 1,000 met minutes per week. Let me give you an example. If you say to me, Barry, I walk 60 minutes Three miles per hour, three days a week. Is that enough? I walk three miles an hour, 60 minutes, one hour, three times a week. Is that enough? Okay. Three, three miles an hour is 3.4 minutes. 3.4 times 60 times three is 612 met minutes per week. I just said above 500 is considered significant good health benefits. I'm not saying 800 wouldn't give you more, but you're getting significant health benefits with 500 minutes per week or more. Play singles tennis. It's six to seven minutes for 30 minutes, three times a week. You can calculate it. You're probably going to get above that 500 minutes mm -hmm. per week. If you say without fancy tools or diagnostics, I guess the simplest thing I could tell you is if you're fit enough to walk comfortably at a three-mile-per-hour pace, which means you're functioning at 3.4 METs, I know you're going to have a 5-MED capacity if we do a treadmill test on you, and you're going to be have a much lower 
mortality rate than people who can't walk at that pace. If you say, what about other tools to use? Use, yeah. a, use a pedometer. And we used to say, take 10,000 steps per day. I said that for years. Mm -hmm. Your information, nobody ever did any studies to confirm that. No, was kind of a, you know, as a couple of doctors said, no, let's do 10,000 steps a day is, is five miles. It's got to be good. Somebody mm -hmm. smarter than me and you actually did the study last year called the Cardia study. They looked at white and black middle-aged people. They looked at their steps per day. And basically what they found, this is astounding, is those who took over 7,000 steps per day, as opposed to less than 7,000 steps per day, had a 50 to 70% lower mortality rate over a 10, 12-year follow-up. Those who took 7,000 or more steps per day, as opposed to those who took less, had a 50 to 70% lower mortality. So the good news is you don't have to necessarily take 10,000. You can take 7,000 yeah. and get a significant reduction in mortality or survival benefit. Lastly, That's huge. Uh, it is huge. Lastly, if you say, what's the most technically sound way, way of doing it? Come to our lab, do a treadmill test, and we'll measure your capacity. Ideally, we want you at least above five mets on a maximal treadmill test. And then, so that's the first goal, above five met capacity. But in general, we say good fitness for your age and gender. Good fitness for your age and gender. Let me give you an example. I have all these norms. 65-year-old man comes to me and says, what's good fitness? The data suggests 8.7 met fitness level. Almost nine mets is good for a 65-year-old guy. The question then is, how does he achieve that nine mets? He's not going to achieve it by walking at two, two and a half mets. He's got to be working, according to our data, at around five to seven mets for his exercise program to achieve nine METs on a graded exercise test. So if people want maximum benefits from exercise, they want to achieve good fitness levels. And by the way, good is almost the same as excellent. Very little difference. There's a plateau. A poor, average, good, excellent. So it's almost the same. So I would recommend your patients achieve good fitness levels. Good fitness is 8.7 METs for a 65-year-old man. Well, there's di different numbers depending on age and gender. But to achieve that 8.7 or almost 9 METs, they need to gradually work up to 5 to 6 mm -hmm. METs. Well, that's great to know because sometimes people are afraid of great, and so they don't even try for good. Yeah, I would agree. The benefits of excellent and good fitness are almost negligible. It, it really looks like it levels off, so to speak. That's amazing. Yeah. So there is, I mean, these have been ranges from 150 to 300, 75 to 150, 500 to 1,000. Is there such a thing as too much exercise or a dangerous level of cardio or a dangerous level of strength training? What happens with too much? Yeah. Years ago, I didn't believe that. I thought exercise is, but now we look at it in many respects. Your question is a good one. In many respects, as exercise is medicine. If exercise is medicine, there are indications and contraindications, and overdosing and underdosing are possible. That's all for part one. This interview has had so many useful chunks of knowledge, and the next segment has more. Here's just a few things we learned today. 
Movement reverses aging at a cellular level. Exercise can make a heart attack less bad. And two minutes of exercise per hour can drop your chance of dying by 10 to 15%. The next part of this interview is also fantastic. We'll cover things like what is too much and how different kinds of activity compare. But we'll also talk about how Dr. Franklin helps his patients become successful at taking these steps. If you'd like a summary of where you can find key points in this interview, sign up for the newsletter at cprhealthclinic.com. If you'd like to learn more from Dr. Barry Franklin, start at his website, drbarryfranklin.com. That's D-R-B-A-R-R-Y-F-R-A-N-K-L-I-N.com. In the meantime, remember, the way you live can save your life.